to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, and I am thrilled that you are joining me for this very special conversation today. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know about an upcoming online masterclass for educators, Four Myths Keeping Educators Stuck. In this transformative online session, clinical psychologist Dr. Rebecca Ray and myself will be sharing four myths that keep teachers stuck and practical ways to move forward with more courage and hope for the future. This masterclass has been specially designed for educators that are looking to recharge their battery and reignite the fire within. The session is Thursday the 17th of August and if you aren't able to join us live, don't panic, you'll have access to the recording so you can watch in your own time. It's going to be a powerful session and I look forward to seeing you there. You can find all the information in the show notes or visit www.rebeccaray.com.au forward slash for miss. Now on with the show. Today, I'm going to be speaking with experienced educator and school leader, Sue Webb, about her moving memoir, Teachers Cry Too a story of being trapped by the bell and saved by it. Sue is a secondary school teacher that lives in Queensland with her husband and children. Her memoir, Teachers Cry Too, was released in November 2022 and is a story about her 30-year relationship with teaching, her struggle to overcome burnout and a period of mental illness that followed. During this time, Sue realised that the career she blamed for making her sick also offered her a pathway to recovery. The Teachers Cry Too project began as a journal, an attempt to make sense of the event that led to a crisis. As an experienced educator, how did she miss the signs that were amiss? After realising that so many other teachers were facing similar challenges, Sue felt compelled to share her story. She now engages more sustainably with the job and talks with other educators about the importance of living a full life rather than a busy one. Sue is an experienced classroom teacher and has held leadership positions in schools across South Australia and Queensland. She holds a master's degree in educational leadership and was a finalist in the Excellence of Teaching Awards for her work in mentoring early career teachers. In this conversation, we discuss the obvious and subtle signs that things need to change, the impact of student loss and unprocessed grief, how to improve your relationship with teaching, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sue Webb. Sue, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks, Meg. It's lovely to be here and chat with you. Today, we're going to be talking about your moving memoir, Teachers Cry Too, 
a story of being trapped by the bell and saved by it. Why did you decide to share your story? Yeah, interestingly, it never started out as a story. I never started out with that intention. Actually, what I was doing was writing a journal in the hope that I could make better sense of what had happened to me and the events leading up to the point of crisis, which we can talk about a little bit later. And so it really began in, I was trying to answer what happened and why did it happen? As an educator of 30 something years experience, it took me off guard. But as the story came together, and as I was listening more closely and observing my colleagues, my teacher colleagues and my school leaders, I started to realise that my story really is one that can be told many, many times over. Unfortunately, It's an all too common experience in our profession. And so as I got further into the project, I felt more and more compelled to share that story. Partly, I think, because as an English teacher, I've always understood the power of storytelling. And I think through sharing our stories, we can often give other people permission to share theirs. And that's always been my hope with the project of Teachers Cry Too. Reading the book, I felt so much of what you shared. There were so many little observations and moments that you witnessed. You've given us such a vivid experience of what it's like to be a teacher and the emotional load that we carry and the intensity of the job. But you also painted a beautiful picture of where your teaching career started. So can you tell us a little bit about the early days of teaching for you? Yeah, I can. It was very much, it was interesting actually, because I was talking to a graduate teacher just recently and I asked her the question, what is it like these days to be a new teacher? And she gave me the most beautiful answer. And she said, I feel like I'm going through professional puberty. She said, I'm really just finding out who I am as a teacher. And that's not always comfortable. And she said, you know, there are, sometimes I experience emotional growing pains. That really summed up for me, that put me right back in my beginning years as a teacher too. I graduated in 1990 as a teacher and I was very lucky to begin my teaching career in regional areas. I say lucky because I think I was with a group of young teachers and many of us had relocated and so didn't really know anybody. And when you're in a situation like that, you tend to tend to forge probably closer relationships than you might under other circumstances. But I also felt lucky because in regional schools, I think as teachers, we often get opportunities afforded to us that we might not get otherwise. And so my beginning years as a teacher really were characterised by lots of, I felt like we could have fun with the curriculum and we could really jump in and see where it would take us. And really, you know, that learning as a new teacher, who am I as a teacher? Who is my my identity as an educator? And I remember as well, Meg, one of the memories that the earliest memories that sticks out to me is that I was sharing at the time with a friend of mine who taught at the same school. She was a science teacher. And there was another very good friend of ours who was a maths teacher. And I was the English teacher. And we were, I remember just sitting around and having a few drinks one night. And I said, I'd really like to come into your classroom and just see what a maths classroom looks like. Because as a new English teacher, I had no idea what a, what a maths classroom might look like or how that might work. And so we started going into each other's classrooms. And then what happened was that kind of gained momentum and other people started hearing about it and said, oh, can we, 
can we join in? Can we come and have a look at your classroom? And really, it was what was really happening was that there was a group of young, passionate teachers driving their own professional development at a time in education where teachers had enough discretionary time to be able to do that. And at a time when we didn't have to prove what we were doing by evidencing it or ticking off observations on a rubric, we could just go and watch each other teach for the enjoyment and the growth of our own professional development. And I also think, which I didn't, I underappreciated at the time, is that our school leaders at the time could see what was happening and and gave us that opportunity to do it. And so I, I feel like my beginning years as a teacher, I were beautifully shaped by high levels of collegiality and lots of opportunities that we, we really grabbed with both hands. And that's where I learned to craft my experience as an educator. It's beautiful to hear these beginnings, the story, how it unfolded. And can you take us to that moment where you described that you felt like your mind snapped? I use the word snapped purposefully because it was so sudden. And literally the morning was going as any other ordinary Saturday morning, taking my daughter to sport. And within what seemed like seconds, the world as I knew it changed. And I didn't understand it and I couldn't make sense of it. In a practical sense, the way, what that looked like was that I was driving the car on the, on the highway, taking my daughter to sport and just had a complete physical shutdown response so that I, I couldn't remember where I was going. I didn't know how to get back. I couldn't. My sound became, uh, you know, I could hear my daughter talking to me from the front seat of the car, but I couldn't understand the words. I couldn't hear the words. I could hear her voice, but it sounded echoey. I had a sense of colour going past me on the side of the road, but I couldn't identify form. Um, And so all I could think about was just stay on the road. I had to focus really hard on staying within the lines so that I didn't have an accident. I knew that I had to stop the car and I wanted to get us out of the car because I knew we weren't safe. But I couldn't make those decisions. I couldn't even get to the point where I could pull the car over. I just had to kind of keep going. I don't remember getting home that day. The next thing I remember really was waking up on the bathroom floor. I heard heard my husband come in and even then I wanted to call out to him. But my voice, I just couldn't make myself articulate anything really. At one point, I do remember daughter and I going into a cafe. I remember thinking, okay, at least I'm out of the car and I've got her out of the car. I couldn't park properly and I don't remember. I just have this blurry image of someone kind of coming out of a haze and trying to take an order. I couldn't see the menu. I couldn't read what was on the menu. I said cappuccino. But really, it's a very hazy what happened at that time, at that particular point of crisis. And that really sparked for me what was to become a four-year journey of mental ill health, something that I had not experienced before, I just didn't see coming. As you share this story, it feels so scary to be on a road, a highway, with your daughter going somewhere and feeling like everything that you're used to, sound, vision, decision-making, 
you had no access to? It was almost like a freeze response. I understand it better now as a shutdown response. And one of the things that I've done since is deep dive into why did that happen? Because as an educator and as someone who's held a number of leadership positions in schools over the years, I had worked with families who and, and students with mental illness and I had triaged a lot of those responses and referred people to specialists and yet for some reason I didn't recognise it in myself. That was perplexing to me. That was a bit of a question that I wanted to try and answer for myself and I did come up with some answers. Uh, certainly I felt the symptoms, you know, the, the symptoms that followed that particular shutdown response that day on the highway were unmissable. I couldn't not feel them, you know, the brain fog, memory loss. I developed OCD type behaviours actually and obsessions around safety, the overthinking, the inability to sleep, the nausea. I certainly knew something was wrong, but I thought I felt tired. And I thought I felt sad, but I didn't know I was sick. I certainly saw the dots. I didn't connect them as being illness. Yes. And as I was reading your book, there was a really potent section where your husband had encouraged you and taken you to the GP after this had happened. And you were sharing your internal thoughts and you're thinking, okay, I've just got to make sure they look like I'm all together because I've got to get back to work. I've got things to do. I don't want to have to put other people out. There's events coming up. There's covers to write. I can't afford to be losing time in this GP office. It's Monday now. I'm going to have one day off and it's back to action tomorrow. And I thought, gosh, how many of us as educators have this narrative in our mind that I don't have time for this. I've just got to get on with it and keep going. Part of the uncertainty for me was not understanding how long the symptoms would last. Now, in retrospect, I can look back at that and say, geez, that was a four-year journey. But at the time, I thought, look, I'll have a good, I'll have the day off, I'll have a good sleep, I'll be fine tomorrow. And what I didn't want, I knew very well because my, I could see that my husband was quite worried and I knew because I, I had said to him, oh, look, oh, that's fine, I'll go to the GP myself. He said, no, no, I'm coming with you because he knew <laughs> And I knew that if the GP gave him an inkling to say, look, there's a real problem here, I think you're not well enough to, to go back to work, he, I felt like I would have a battle on my hands. And, you know, what I, I think what I felt was a concern about losing my sense of agency because when I don't feel well or when I feel, if, I'm, if I can make a decision about needing some time off work, I can own that decision and that gives me control over my choices. But if somebody else steps in and makes that decision for me, my husband or my GP or my employer, and says, actually, we don't think that you're in a good enough shape, in good enough shape or fit enough to continue with your duties as at the time I was U-level coordinator, I was worried about losing my sense of agency and my control over what that might look like. And so I really avoided it. I avoided getting to that point. So when did you first realise that you were experiencing a mental illness? This will sound strange now, but even as I was writing the story, even as I had made a decision to go to publication and I had an editor and I had a publisher and I'd done a bazillion edits, as you do when you write a book, I was using words like 
oh, I had an episode or the wheels fell off for a while or I was feeling a bit fragile. And so I avoided the term mental illness until I think probably three edits into the book where my editor actually called me on it and said, you're not naming it. And the reader knows that if you're going to write a story about your journey with mental illness, then you have to be honest about it and call it for what it is. <laughs> and so she kind of pushed me to that. And it was really the very the late stages of editing that I could actually bring myself to use the term mental illness. Isn't that interesting that we can spot this in our students and the families so quickly? As you say, we've got a very tuned radar. We get people and we get them quickly. But then when it comes to ourselves, it's like we have a blind spot until someone else helps us see it. Certainly at that time, I recognised that I wasn't thinking rationally. And so I tended to, in some ways, in terms of how we functioned as a family and in terms of how I functioned at school, because I lost confidence in my ability to make decisions that normally I would make in the normal course of a day with ease, without even thinking twice about it, I really doubted my ability to make good, to judge well and make good decisions. And so I found myself deferring to other people and gradually stepping back and withdrawing almost. And so there became distance between my colleagues and I because I was kind of protecting myself really and I didn't want to give them, I wanted to try and cover up those symptoms so that people couldn't see what was going on behind the scenes. So did you tell any of your colleagues what you were going through? I told nobody in my family. The only people who knew were my husband and the GP that I spoke to that once that I went. Nobody else knew. In fact, I went to great pains to try and keep that hidden and and to keep it a secret. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to share the book is to say it didn't do me well to keep that a secret. I confused secrecy and privacy. What I was trying to do is protect my privacy, but what I realise now is that really what I was doing is keeping things a secret and all of the, the pretense and the avoidance strategies that I had to develop became exhausting in themselves. When the book launched, Meg, in November, I asked my husband to talk about our experience from his perspective because when somebody in the family is experiencing emotional crisis and mental illness, it never just affects that one person. And so I said to him, I think it's really important for us as a couple to be able to share with people what we learned because that will be helpful for other people. And he said, there are a few things that he said. So he did speak at the book launch and he said, one of the things I learned in order to protect Sue's privacy, I didn't talk to anybody. But what he learned is that he needed to reach out to somebody for his own support. And he also learned that he kept thinking to himself, if we can just get through this, then things will go back to normal. But what we've both learned to accept is that it's not about getting back to normal. It's not about getting back to where we were before. It's about learning how to do things differently and accepting that normal looks different now. What powerful realisations. And for listeners to hear that, that 
we are so often in the role of supporting others, but who is supporting us? When I think about that an analogy of put your oxygen mask on before others, my mind goes to, well, who's putting it on for us? We need times where someone else can hold us because we hold so many people in our lives and over a beautiful career filled with ups and downs, it's taxing. The load gets bigger and bigger and we hold more and more and more. So as you look back now, what do you think led to this moment? A number of things. I think like many people, I had understood teaching as a vocation, but I had misunderstood the word vocation. (laughs) And so when we talk about a calling, and, and that's why teachers go into teaching, because we are called to work with young people. We feel a real calling to be able to connect and work with young people. What we have forgotten is that in the very early forms of that word vocation, what was centred was quietude and stillness and reflection and connection with self and spirit, however we may understand that. What we've done is preferenced the idea of service and self-sacrifice, which is also very much part of vocation, at the expense of the other. I felt like all of my time was spent in providing a service that I really felt was important and prioritising the needs of all the young people that I was working with and their families and colleagues. And what I had lost sight of is in order for me to be able to do that, the vocation demands a certain degree of groundedness that comes with finding stillness and and solitude and connection, connection with self, connection with spirit. So what happened, of course, like many educators will describe, is that the boundaries between my work life and my non-work life became so blurred that the job and the work that I was doing consumed almost every aspect of my life to the point where I would have weekends where I'd say to my husband when when the children were younger, can you take the kids away for the weekend because I've got all this marking to do, you know, and I look back now and I think, what was I thinking? But I think you just get so caught up in the momentum of it that you lose perspective. And once you lose perspective, then you lose yourself. One of the things, I do remember a conversation that my husband and I had at one stage, he came in and found me crying and he said, you know, you have to remember, he was trying to give me some perspective and he said, nobody's dying. And I said to him, so why does it feel like someone has? Why do I feel sad? What am I grieving? Why does, why do I feel like there's been a, I'm grieving a death of some kind? When the book came together and I'd finished the story, I realized it was me I was grieving for because I'd lost that sense of who I was. Part of my recovery then was learning how to rediscover that again. And how to discover yourself as a woman and a human that teaches, not just that identity that so many of us have that we're fused and attached to of, I am a teacher. There's a part in the book where I say, I am a teacher had become a very heavy description for what I did. It felt heavy. But if I reframed that to I teach, 
that felt much more life-giving. That felt so much more doable because the process of teaching without the encumbrance of what being a teacher looks like today, that gave me a way forward. And also in your book, there's a chapter about loss. And I think this is such an important topic because working in schools, and if you work in schools long enough, we're going to experience loss and that impacts us deeply. Well, it certainly impacted me deeply. And I think part of the problem when you asked me earlier, what were some of the things that led me to the point of crisis? What I realised was that I had not had the opportunity to process grief for a number of students that I'd lost during the course of my career. So as a first year teacher, I had the experience of losing one of our students to suicide. And I was so unprepared for the emotional punch. I was completely out of my depth as a first year teacher. And even though I think you can never really be prepared for for something like that, but through university, we never had conversations about the emotional intensity of the job that might present in, in such a way. And the other thing I found, Meg, was that when teachers have to deal with situations of crisis like that in schools as we do, our first priority are the young people who are also grieving, often for the first time, often it's their first experience with death. We talk a lot about emotional suppression because what what the teacher needs to do in that situation, be calm, measured, strong, be together for the young people who need to lean on them. And if we are anything but that, then we feel that we're being unprofessional. And certainly that's how I felt. And I tried my best to be professional and to be there for the young people and to try and guide them through that grief and the family and the school community as best I could. But I have to say, even 30 years later, if we are called to an unplanned staff meeting by the principals, I feel that nausea. I feel that response because I think it's not going to be a good announcement. I almost prepare myself for that feeling again. And I think that came many years later because Daniel Malcolm was a student at our school and so I was asked to participate in Daniel's funeral. Everybody's sad at funerals, especially the funerals of young people. It just feels like the natural order of the world is ripped out from underneath you. And the very thing that makes us good at our job is that that ability to connect in a meaningful and purposeful way with young people. If we lose them, through suicide or through illness, traumatic and tragic circumstances, that really throws us off balance. Certainly it threw me off balance. And I realised after Daniel's funeral that I really had not had an opportunity to grieve for the number of young people that that I had lost and mourned for over the course of my career. And so in some ways, Daniel's funeral became for me a grief for all young people that we lost that I felt that we'd lost unfairly. And I was partly angry. The things that we experience in grief, and you, first of all, you feel shock and you feel denial and then you feel anger and then you miss them. I think even all these years later, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about them. And we can do a lot better in the teaching profession to prepare our new teachers for the emotional punch and the emotional crises that they will need to deal with. I'd like to see some of those conversations opened up in a safe and structured way that will help to guide young new teachers. I say young, but that, you know, so we have second career teachers coming in too. 
we can better prepare them for the emotional intensity of tragedy. Because you're right, in schools, you know, such schools are now numbering 2,000, 3,000 students. It's going to happen at some point. The better prepared we can be insofar as that's possible, then I think the better we can respond and the better we can move through it in a way that is a little more healthier than perhaps I had. So as you're speaking, what's coming to my mind is different crisis trauma experiences that I've been involved with in schools. And it's almost like it happens, we crisis manage, and then we're on to the next thing. And now I'm thinking about all of these events that occur that are deeply moving and unsettling and really do throw us off balance. But for so many of us, we're not having a conversation about it. We're not getting a support from a psychologist or someone, a safe space to actually process it and talk about it. It's this motion of, okay, we've got through that, next thing. Off to the athletics carnival. And we really need to take some time to process the emotional load and which we carry. I often think of that saying, what we resist persists. Just because it's not visible and obvious, it is there in our body, in our systems. And just think about how much as a collective we have suppressed over the years. That's exactly right. When we talk about crisis management in schools, we often crisis manage for students. There's very little crisis management for teachers. Even now, at least we've got employee assistance programs, EAPs, we can ring a number and get professional counselling. But once we move through that point of crisis, once we've had the funeral, thinking has always been the best thing for students is to move them as quickly as possible back to normalcy. Let's get the routines going again, right, so that they can they can move forward, they, they can move on, and, and I think that's important. But what we can do a lot better is say, how have we managed crisis for our staff? What do they need? It was brought home to me because that very first year after I lost the student as a first-year teacher, I went into a shock response that I didn't recognise as a shock response because I'd never had one before. And it was only because it was just fortuitous, just luck really, that one of the students that I taught at the time, her mother was a counsellor. And so she just took it upon herself to pop into the school and visit one day. And she came into my classroom. I remember she put up a chair next to her and she said, I just want to check in with you and see how you're going. I said, I don't know. I feel very strange. Like I feel like I'm moving in slow motion. And, you know, and, and sound was fragmented, very, very similar response to the one I had years later that day on the highway. And she said, ah, it's a shock response. And I said, what's that? <laughs> I didn't know what a shock response was, but she explained it to me and, and then that made sense. But uh, these are conversations we absolutely need to pay attention to, partly because I think the more we know about these kinds of things, then the better prepared we can be for them. But also, Meg, I think the needs of young people are becoming so much more complex now and we have so many more young people that we work with every day who are in crisis and who are experiencing trauma. The teacher can only absorb so much of that without experiencing vicarious trauma themselves. 
it's so important that we think about ourselves and how much we absorb from our environment and that that absorption, we're paying a price for it. We know that the cumulative effects of that continual emotion suppression and surface acting, presenting in a way that you are calm and measured when you're feeling anything but that, over a career span of 30-odd years, now in retrospect I look back at that and I think, well, no wonder, really. It shouldn't have been a surprise actually. (laughs) It makes so much more sense now. So with all this in mind, what changes have had the biggest impact on your life now? I have certainly made some pretty significant changes and have a different relationship with the way I work now. In 2016, when I first had that real crisis point, by the end of 2016, I made a decision that I would step back from leadership. I didn't know whether that would be a temp um, decision or not. But at that point, I felt that I needed to step back from my leadership role. I knew I wasn't functioning the way I needed to. And I felt at that stage, at that point, it was really a matter of my survival. I didn't really feel as though I had much choice. And I felt like it was the right thing to do for me and for everybody else, to be honest. But since then, I've done a lot more reading. I understand so much better now what the triggers are. I have strategies in place to be able to to deal with things if they arise again, and sometimes they do. I'm much more alert to the signs. I recognize them much earlier. And one of the things that I found really helpful is that I now have a language framework through which I can understand and describe what's happening to me. And I think that's really hopeful in the wellbeing space because 30 years ago we didn't. So when we hear, when we use language like decision fatigue, emotional suppression, emotional labour, surface acting, that language is really helpful to be able to understand what's happening and how to move through it. I know much better now, even something as simple as we talk about the importance of rest, because very early on I knew I was always tired. No matter how many hours of sleep I got, I always woke up feeling tired. I was exhausted. And I didn't understand that. And my internal dialogue was often very critical. And I would say to myself things like, oh, for goodness sake, you were in bed at nine o'clock last night. How can you still be tired? Get a grip. You've got no stamina. Get up and get (laughs) And so what I realize now is that there are different types of rest. And whilst I actually didn't need physical rest, I needed cognitive rest. Because, you know, it might have been, there might be days when you're making an a higher number of decisions than you normally would. So what you need then is time to actually say, I can't make any more decisions now. I'm at capacity, so I need a rest from that. There's a, a beautiful learning that I that has made a real difference to me when we talk about social rest because I had understood that to mean, gosh, I've just been working with people and talking all day. I'm peopled out. I just need to step away and I don't want to do any more people. <laughs> But what I've realized is that social rest refers to that ability to be able to rest authentically in the company of people that we trust and with whom we can be authentically ourselves. I don't know about other people, but I'm lucky enough to have a few friends in my life. I can just totally, I don't have to think about what I'm saying. I don't have to check what I'm saying. 
I can answer the door in my slippers and it'll be completely fine. And there are so many times when I'm when I'm with those people that I find myself thinking partway through, oh, this is exactly what I need. This is restorative. And so that's what we mean by social rest. Learning about that, having that language framework enables me to be much more considered about the choices that I make and be able to recognise more accurately what I need at any given time. Certainly I've put boundaries in place in terms of my work and the self-care stuff that I think a lot of people are hearing about these days, you know, it's, a, it's an important conversation and I've adopted that. A lot of those strategies have been really helpful. There's also a space for advocacy, systemic change, which is slow, painfully slow sometimes. And, you, you know, you can, you can feel like, oh, you feel like you're not getting anywhere. But actually there is room for advocacy. And I think that's important. And that's part of the Teachers Cry 2 project. So thank you for giving us so much to think about and articulating things in a way that really makes sense for us. To wrap up this conversation, I would love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah, I'd love to. I am inspired by? I'm inspired by young people who are able to look public opinion in the eye, square on and say, you know what? I'm doing it anyway. When life feels hard? Step back. Step back and try and work out why is it hard? What do you need to attend to? An underrated skill is? Observation. I learn so much about my students and my colleagues simply by observing them. And I would say that of any data that I have ever used, the observations that I make about the students in my care have always been the most accurate and reliable data sources. And I am looking forward to? I'm looking forward to where education is going to be moving in the next five years because I think we are in crisis, but out of crisis comes opportunity, and I think that's really exciting. I'm also looking forward to seeing where the Teachers Cry 2 project moves next. So. Thank you so much for bringing this to life, for giving us permission to cry too, that we are humans and, yes, we can get on and do all the things and we can do it very well and tick all the boxes and we also need a space to rest, to recharge, to not be the ones that are in control and on permission to be human. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for having me, Meg, and thank you for your really important work. How fabulous is Sue? Sue's book, Teachers Cry Too, A Story of Being Trapped by the Bell and Saved by It, is now available online. To learn more about Sue and the Teachers Cry Too project, see the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. If you're feeling a little stuck and want some practical strategies to prioritise your wellbeing and take it to the next level, join Dr. Rebecca Ray and myself for our masterclass that explores the four myths keeping educators stuck and how to find inspiration and empowerment instead. 
This unique opportunity will be Thursday the 17th of August and if you aren't able to join us live, don't worry. You'll have access to the recording so you can watch the replay in your own time. This masterclass is going to be a transformative session and I look forward to seeing you there. You can find all the information in the show notes or visit www.rebeccaray.com.au forward slash four myths. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast 93. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.